welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. All right. So in this episode, I bring back Dr. Tom Tedros from the Brigham and Women's Hospital in in, uh, Boston, Massachusetts. And we go over the DCAF-2 randomized control clinical trial. For those of you who are not familiar, this was a study that was published by Nasir Marouche. Uh, He was the primary investigator for the original DCAF study, which came out back in 2014 in JAMA. And in the most recent iteration of the DCAF-2 study, the investigators were looking at the effect of MRI-guided fibrosis ablation versus conventional catheter ablation on atrial arrhythmia recurrence in patients with persistent atrial fibrillation. And so ultimately, this was a a negative study in the sense that it didn't show any major difference between the recurrence outcomes of AFib, AFLUTTER, ATAC in patients who had persistent AFib who had MRI-guided ablation versus conventional pulmonary vein stenosis. But there's a lot of nuance to this paper. And so Dr. Tedros and I get into a lot of the weeds of this uh, recent publication Uh, Tom always brings so much insight uh, regarding the EP world and how this changes clinical practice. And so I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too, with Dr. Tom Tedros from the Brigham and Women's Hospital, looking at the most recent DCAF-2 randomized controls trial. All right, well, welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui. We had such a good response last time when we covered the East AF Net study that I couldn't help but invite back my friend and Brigham and Women's EP, Dr. Tom Tedros. Tom, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Oh, thanks, Armin. Really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Awesome. So, This time, I thought we would cover another paper that's gotten a lot of press recently, the DCAF-2 trial. And for those listeners out there, this trial is not about caffeine. This is not a coffee trial. And Tom's going to tell us kind of all about this study and how it impacts what we do in this space of atrial fibrillation. So, Tom, I'm going to hand the floor back over to you. Can you take us through this study and maybe just start by giving us a background of, I guess there was a DCAF-1. There was, yeah. And I guess even a bigger overview is, you know, for atrial fibrillation, we know that for paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, ablation works works much better than it does for persistent. And so paroxysmal AFib is AFib lasting less than a week and persistent lasts a week or longer. And pulmonary vein isolation is the mainstay of ablation for both but it works much better for paroxysmal. You can get success rates of up to 85% for paroxysmal. But for persistent, the success rates are only about 50 to 60%. And the reason is that as you progress to persistent AFib, the left atrium gets larger and it gets fibrosed or scarred. And for that reason, the, the triggers that cause AFib 
Instead of just coming from the veins, they tend to come from other spots. For the past two decades, there have been countless studies about, you know, what else can you do besides pulmonary vein isolation to get better success? So there's been, you know, ablating the posterior wall, ablating lines, ablating the appendage, the ligament of Marshall. It, it goes on and on, the ganglionated plexi. And then the other one is scar. So should we ablate scar? So that's kind of the big background picture. The one of DCAF-1, which is the first DCAF trial that came out in JAMA in 2014, that study had about 300 patients in it that before going for ablation for AFib, they underwent an MRI of the heart to quantify the amount of scar that they had in their left atrium. The burden of scar was put into kind of four stages. You know, stage one was less than 10% of the left atrium having scar out to stage four, which had, you know, more than 30% of the left atrium had scar. And what they found was that the success of the ablation directly correlated with the amount of scar that you had in your heart. So that was the background for it. Okay, great. And now we're, we're fast forwarding to decaf two. And so now we have this background, just like you said. So just to kind of summarize for the listener, historically, PVI has been kind of the, the tried and true method to deal with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, kind of moving into that space with persistent using PVI, maybe something more, like you said, the, you know, the floor, the ligamental marsh of all these other structures. And decaf, the original decaf was an attempt to identify if ablating fibrosis in the left atrium could improve response to treatment of paroxysmal and persistent AFib, a single arm study, just a cohort study, but it did show that there was an advantage of ablating scar in a single arm study. So here we are now, decaf 2 just came out in JAMA, June 21st, 2022. So really hot off the press. So let's walk through decaf 2. Yeah, I will say, i say the main advantage of decaf 1 then was that it was a prognostic, it was a, helped us prognostically so that we could guide our patients and guide ourselves on, is it worth doing ablation or is it not worth it? And, and we could have the patients involved in that decision. Okay. And then it brought up the question, if we ablated this, would it help? Or if we ablate the scar that we saw in MRI, would it help? So that's that was the main driver for decaf too. So this study has about 800 patients in it that were randomized one-to-one. So the control arm just got pulmonary vein isolation, which is still the standard of care. And the treatment arm had pulmonary vein isolation plus ablation of the scar that we see on the MRI. Now, to explain a little bit further, when we get an MRI of the heart prior to ablation, we can create a 3D model of that and then superimpose it on the 3D model that we make with our ablation catheters so that we know exactly where the scar is when we superimpose those maps on each other. So during the ablation, you could either you know, encircle the scar with ablation dots all the way around the perimeter, or you could homogenize it, meaning just ablate the entire scar. So, so about 400 patients in each arm were, were performed. And then for follow-up, they looked for recurrences of AFib, which by the standards of literature, 30 seconds of AFib or flutter or atrial tachycardia is considered a recurrence or failure. And so they compared the recurrences in both the control and, and treatment arms and actually found no difference that about 43 to 46% of the patients had recurrence. So no significant difference. Absolutely. And just to clarify a couple of things for the listeners, a little bit different from DCAF. DCAF 2 was all persistent AFib, right? These were all patients who've had AFib for at least seven days. And a couple interesting things about the patients themselves, when you look at the baseline characteristics 
on average, these patients were a year out from their diagnosis of AFib. You know, this is something we kind of talked about last time too with East AFNet. There is still this delay between diagnosis and treatment, at least diagnosis and and an EP seeing the patient in order to intervene with the catheter. They had this diagnosis of persistent, right? So they're not longstanding persistent yet. They haven't necessarily had continuous AF for a year, but these were all patients who had atrial fibrillation for at least seven days who on average are now presenting a year after their diagnosis. Yeah, that's a very good point. And when you look also that not all the patients were symptomatic, I forget what actually percentage. So you can imagine that they may have, it may have been picked up incidentally. They may have been picked up by their primary care doc or general cardiologist. And so you can imagine that they might have just gone a rate control strategy for a while. They About half of them tried an antiarrhythmic drug first, which are both reasonable options. We know that you know, going straight to ablation is an option by the guidelines, or trying an antiarrhythmic drug first is also an option. So I think patients probably went through other treatment strategies, and a year goes by, and then they're presented for their ablation. Right, exactly. The other thing I found really interesting is even though these are patients who, by diagnosis, had only had AFib for more than seven days, we just had talked about, the amount of fibrosis was a lot more than I would have expected. So they have a table on their baseline characteristics where they break down the difference in fibrosis between the MRI-directed patients and the PVI only. Mm -hmm. And even just with seven days of AFib, the majority of patients had up to 20% fibrosis in their left atrium. That kind of blew me away. I didn't think that essentially with a one-year diagnosis of AFib and then persistent AFib for seven days or more, that you could already have 20% fibrosis in your left atrium. Yeah, that's a very good point. And if you go back to DCAF-1, they they looked at all the different uh, clinical covariates to see were there any predictors for the amount of fibrosis in the heart. And the only, only one thing that, that correlated was history of hypertension. So you can imagine that even in this patient population here, that may have been years and decades of hypertension that led to atrial fibrosis. And then at some tipping point, the patients went into AFib. And so that's one point. The other point is that there is this saying that AFib begets AFib, that once you go into AFib, there are further remodeling changes that happen that that cause a a progression of the fibrosis. So you actually can have cell death or apoptosis, and then you get replacement fibrosis. And that does occur when patients have AFib. There are two types of of scarring or fibrosis. There's interstitial fibrosis, which is thought not to have as much risk for developing AFib. And then there's replacement fibrosis, which you can imagine if you have scar between cells that it's gonna cause some electrical disarray and and slowing and uncoupling that, that then leads to more AFib. The other thing that was interesting is with the fibrosis, whether it be 10%, 20%, 30%, you know, all these different categories that they had preset. If you look at their supplemental information, it was not easy to actually ablate all the fibrosis, regardless of how much was there. And so I'm looking at a specific table, I guess it's the E table two, where they talk about the different levels of fibrosis and if you had level one fibrosis, you were able to ablate it 100% of the time, right? Makes sense. It's very little you know, scar back there. But even if you have level two in the PVI only group, only about 40% of the scar could be in upon versus in the MRI guided, it was 70%. So you were better able to 
up late the fibrosis if you had an MRI, but it's still only a 70%, I guess, treatment of that scar. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. I think a couple of factors that might contribute is that some of the scar might have been in an area on the septum and you don't want to blast the septum too much and, and have a risk of AV conduction disease or herp block. Some of it might be incomplete ablation. So we try to achieve a transmural ablation from the endocardium to the epicardium, but we have very not much feedback to know exactly if we're getting fully transmural on, on every ablation lesion. And certainly having scar doesn't does affect the direction of energy from our radiofrequency ablation catheter. So all the energy may not be transmitted properly. So there was a, a disconnect or there's much less evidence of complete ablation on the follow-up MRI compared to looking at the kind of ablation lesion superimposed over it. So I think there was probably partly incomplete ablation and probably partly spots that you didn't want to ablate to avoid risks. Right. Which just speaks to kind of how complex AFib really is. You can see something based on MRI, you can target it, but then unfortunately, even with all these interventions we have, the mapping systems that we have, this is still really difficult tissue to essentially make silent, in other words. So now really, really interesting. What do you think about the follow-up method? You know, yeah, I think <laughs> for all studies for AFib, the follow-up is, I guess the, the gold standard would be if we could put an implantable loop recorder in every patient after their ablation. Some studies have done that, and that's the best because it's probably not fair to say that a 30-second episode of AFib when you were previously in persistent AFib is called a failure because your overall burden of AFib might actually be much lower and you might feel much better. So I think AFib studies are a little bit unfair on that standpoint. So if you don't have an implantable loop recorder, then what you have are essentially spot checks where when you come to clinic again, EKG, usually at three months and 12 months, you might get a two-week MCT monitor. And in this case, they also had kind of daily rhythm strip recordings from a kind of a smartphone application where you put your fingers on some metal pads and it records a rhythm strip. Whenever patients had symptoms, they'd also record a rhythm strip. But I think that's decent. I think the quality of the recordings from these rhythm strips now are, are so good that we actually will scan images of these rhythm strips into our electronic medical records and actually make formal diagnoses of AFib using these smartwatch applications and, and smartphone applications. So I think it's reasonable. I think the way that they followed up is quite reasonable. Yeah, I mean, it would seem that if you're sending in a home EKG, every single day for the follow-up course of the study that if you were in AFib, you would find that. I mean, it's Agreed. Seems, yeah, seems... No, I think they did a good job from that standpoint. Yeah. A couple other kind of small details, maybe they're important, maybe they're not, I wanted to ask you about. So in the PVI only group, there is a statement in the manuscript that says once the patient underwent PVI and they had a DC cardioversion, and if they did not resume normal sinus rhythm, that it was then up to the operator to continue to perform additional quote unquote maneuvers in order to try to obtain a normal sinus rhythm. Yeah, I think there are a couple of standard things we do beyond the veins. I think it's probably in all these centers where we're high volume and highly experienced centers. So if people had their preferences with regards to ablating the posterior wall, doing an empiric cavotricuspidismus ablation for typical flutter. Those are all things that we tend to do to try to improve the results. None of them yet has definitely proven to improve results. I think there are a number of small studies here and there showing some improvement, but again, not generalizable and, and kind of not scalable when we look at kind of large randomized controlled trials. So, so whether it had an effect, I don't know. I think 
the success in both arms is still lower than we had hoped. I mean, roughly half of patients have recurrences. So from this, I think it's probably a good real world assessment that the control arm was allowed to do additional ablation because sometimes we do that. Right. Let's move past the primary outcome, which like you said, was a uh, 43% in the MRI group versus 46 in the PVI only group, which you had mentioned, no significant difference. And let's talk about the safety profile of the MRI versus the PVI group. Do you want to get into that for us? Yeah, sure. The, the control arm, which had PVI only, had no major adverse events. And the treatment arm had a significantly higher amount. They, there were six ischemic strokes within the perioperative period, and there were actually two deaths. One of the deaths occurred about five or six days later and, and was a sudden. The other death occurred just about a month later. There was going to be a VF arrest and then had strokes afterwards. So so certainly there were some more complications in the, in the treatment arm. Yeah. And what I found interesting when you talk about the strokes, five out of the six strokes happened within the first two days, or I'm sorry, the first three days after the the MRI-based intervention. How does that lay out with respect to other studies when you're talking to patients about strokes? I mean, is it most common in those first kind of one to two days after? Yeah, I would say yes. The the rates, uh, I think it came out to roughly around 1%. I, I think that's what we kind of quote to our patients in terms of potential risk. I think probably it's a little bit less. I think in this study is maybe a little bit more than expected. And, and I think maybe that is attributable to the extra ablation that was performed. You can imagine that if you, if you try to homogenize a scar, you might develop much more coagulum on the on the inside of the left atrium that could then kind of embolize and cause a stroke. So I would imagine that, you know, that there may be a contribution from the additional RF that was performed. So just spending more time in the atrium possibly could have just led to... Yeah, longer dwelling time on the left atrium. Agreed, that also is a contributor for sure. So let's kind of flip to the other side of the heart. Let's talk about the epicardial area, which is not covered by, by this paper, but I am curious... Does this at all affect or change the way you interpret some of the other hybrid things that that we're doing? So when you talk about convergent or you talk about TT maze, where let's specifically talk about convergent for a second, where for those listeners who are who don't know about convergent, this is a subxiphoid epicardial kind of debulking of the posterior wall with a essentially a a suction catheter. As surgeons in that space, when we're doing that approach, we're essentially blindly, and even though we can directly see the posterior left atrium, we don't see scar per se, right? This is not MRI guided. We are homogenizing that posterior wall. How do you think we should think about the DCAF2 data with respect to this subxiphoid approach? Yeah, and I think that's a great question. First of all, I think the the scar by MRI, it, it can be epicardial and it can be endocardial. We can get an assessment of endocardial scar by when we do our ablation by uh, taking the voltage of the tissue on the endocardium and make our, our map a voltage map. There are some limited data on uh, showing that that correlates with scar by MRI, but you know, there's not a lot of data for that. I think the epicardium is where there's epicardial fat. We know that the proximity of the epicardial fat directly correlates with the areas of fibrosis because there are paracrine effects of that fat that actually cause fibrosis. We can't reach those endocardially. I think that's part of the advantage of being able to have access to the epicardium. So I think, yeah, we, and, and also it helps us to get 
transmurality of our ablation lesions if the surgeons or can do some epicardial ablation and then we can touch it up endocardially. There are also the ganglionated plexi, which have the autonomic nerve endings to the heart that are located epicardially. Sometimes we fortuitously can ablate those endocardially if we can get full transmurality of our lesions. But I think having kind of your catheter directly on them during an epicardial ablation certainly can have much more effect on ganglionated plexi. In terms of the posterior wall in particular, we know that embryonically the pulmonary veins and the posterior wall have the same embryonic origin. So it makes sense anatomically that you might target the posterior wall with epicardial ablation, even if there's no scar there or unknown burden of scar there. What you're doing is extending your, your pulmonary vein isolation to the posterior wall. So I think from that standpoint, it also might have a great advantage. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just kind of curious if we were able to effectively intervene on that scar, whether it be from endocardial, epicardial, hybrid approach, you know, working together to see if we can actually affect more scar, would that ultimately lead to better outcomes? Yeah, that's a good question. Maybe we need to look at, you know, you know, MRI burden of left atrial scar and and then have that to guide your epicardial ablation. Maybe that would can make a difference. I think that's a very good question. Yeah, it'd be really interesting. I know, you know, in the DCAF2 study, they did ultimately analyze those different subgroups. So the 10% fibrosis with MRI versus PBI, the 20%, so on and so forth. So they did independently look at that too. It did not seem to make a difference, but still curious whether if, if we worked together in this space, if if we could provide a better outcome for folks. No, I think that's a very good point. And I think that, I think maybe, yes. The other thing I wanted to mention as far as safety, just wanted to get your perspective as a busy EP. Esophageal injury was not a different safety issue with the two groups, 1.2% in the MRI group versus 0.2% in the PVI only group. Does that sound about right to you as far as kind of clinical practice numbers? Yeah, I think injury in terms of ulcers, I think probably we have more ulcers than we realize using you know temperature monitors to look at luminosophageal temperature gives us a kind of a, a rough guide. But you know, as you know, the esophagus might be quite wide and the temperature probe might be just on one side of the esophagus. So often we have heating or cooling in the esophagus, we don't realize it. I think that the main thing was that, you know, there were no, you know, atrioesophageal fistulas, which is, you know, the right. dreaded one in 10,000 complication that can be fatal. But yeah, in terms of ulcers, I think that's probably about right from what they had in this study. So where do we go from here? So now we have this DCAF2 data. How is this going to change your practice? What do you think we need to do kind of moving forward with, with Yeah, data? that's a good question. You know, I, I think if it were a positive study, I think a lot of people would be ablating SCAR. I will say that when we see SCAR, when we make our voltage map, even if they haven't had an MRI, it still does guide how we ablate. For example, if the SCAR were around the veins, we might make a very wide antral ablation so that we encompass the scar within our PVI. If the posterior wall is very scarred, I think that would push a lot of electrophysiologists to say, I decided to also to break the posterior wall because there was scar there. So if there's a scar, for example, that goes, for example, from the veins all the way to the mitral annulus, and we're worried about conduction slowing being a, a, a kind of a possible contributor to atrial flutter, for example, we might say, well, I think I decided to homogenize that scar and, and connect it up to the mitral annulus to prevent perimitral flutter. So a lot of things in atrial ablation, again, because we only have data for PVI and nothing else in terms of what is what should be our standard ablation. I think we still do things outside of PVI to try to improve the results. And so, you know, this study was a negative study, but I, I think SCAR still does enter our minds as something that we should address when we ablate patients. We do also sometimes see 
micro reentry and macro reentry related to scars. So it is a thing and we don't know the answers yet. I think there's still a lot to be learned and done to improve our, our results for sure. I guess one thing that this paper and these these two papers, I guess, have taught me, maybe not what was actually the intended outcome of the paper, was that just like you said, during your EP studies, you're able to find SCAR and do SCAR-directed interventions, right? So it's not that we weren't addressing SCAR before, but what's maybe interesting about these data and these two papers is that now we have a non-invasive way to identify the burden of SCAR pre-intervention and then the amount of SCAR post-intervention. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, if this will be used more as a tool to help us prognosticate patients AF based on a non-invasive method. So, you know, not having to take them to the EP lab, but rather put them through an MRI machine and then use that information to help us. Yeah, no, I think that that's a very good point. I think I think that was probably the, the major take-home point from DCAF one. In that study, again, I think you have to have, and there's there is software for this. Is it scalable? I guess is a question. Could every center could every imaging center make good quality late enhancement, delayed enhancement MRIs of the left atrium and get good results? Even in DCAF-1, which you can imagine all centers that had fantastic imaging centers, 17% of the studies had or patients had to be thrown out because the images just weren't good. You know, the left atrium is very thin. So to quantify delayed enhancement scar of a thin walled structure, I think is probably quite difficult. So I guess it's still uh, to, to be determined whether... This is something that's scalable and that can be helpful in the long run. So yeah, I think it's a very good question. Well, wow. So that was a lot. So that was DCAF2. Learned a ton from this. Thank you for all your insights into this paper. Is there anything else you want to leave our listeners with, with with respect to MRI guide intervention for persistent AF and the results of the DCAF2 study? Yeah, I think overall, imaging studies with MRI and CAT scans, it's become an integral part of how we and understand the anatomy and, and the physiology of AFib. And, and it, we use it on day-to-day clinical practice. And so I think these studies are both extremely relevant. Yeah, I think that's my take-home message from these studies. Great. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Tedros. Thanks for joining us from Boston. And once the next kind of hot press item comes out, you'll be getting an email from me to come <laughs> back on. And my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com, and check out our Twitter feed, at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcasts and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.